about it. It's going to be a great series. It's called Redemptive Love. And uh, it's, we, it's kind of obligatory that we have to do a love series in, in February because it's Valentine's. And just for all the guys in the room, this is your reminder, okay? <laughs> Valentine's is coming up, okay? You've got a little less than two weeks now. Don't wait till the last second or you will be the guy getting the card, you know, like 11.59. And it's going to be the terrible card on Val- you know, Valentine's Eve. You don't want to be that guy, okay? So go get your card today. They've already got all the Valentine cards out. So go get it right now, okay? After service, go get them. Um, but we have to talk about love in some form or fashion. And, and I felt like this was a great way to do that because the love that Jesus has for us is redemptive. It's not like when we say, man, I love chocolate, right? Or I love that movie. Or man, I love you. Do you ever tell somebody you love them and you're like, eh, I really just kind of like you. I don't really love you, right? Um, but we use the word love a lot. But the love that Jesus has for us is different than any other love in this world that we can ever experience. And the way that he loves us is redemptively. And redeem or redemption in that form are words that we, it's kind of church ease at times. We talk about redemption and we talk about, you know, being redeemed. And we're like, okay, but what does that really mean? And if you look at the literal meaning of uh, what the word redeem means, if you go back to the Hebrew, it means to buy out. And it specifically means to buy out of slavery, and so when we talk about redemption, and even Pastor Todd mentioned it as he was praying, but when we talk about being redeemed by God, what we're saying is the blood of Jesus, it has purchased us out of slavery. We were literally on the slave block being sold. We were slaves to sin, and Jesus showed up and said, I'll pay the price for them. That's literally what we're talking about when we talk about being redeemed by Jesus. But I want you to know that we can love, we have the ability through Jesus in our life to love people redemptively as well. It is not easy. It's hard. It costs us something because, again, when we love people redemptively, what we're saying is we're buying someone out of slavery. Now, it's not the same context as what Jesus did for us. But whenever we love someone redemptively, it costs us something because we are purchasing their freedom in some way or form or fashion. Now, I've heard people say things like, my wife completes me, and that's great. I'm I'm so glad you feel that way. I love my wife, but she does not complete me, okay? Jesus completes me. Um, My wife is my partner in life, and there is none better than she is. Uh, She is absolutely perfect for me, but she is not the one that completes me. And I'm free in Christ. My wife doesn't give me freedom, but there's an element of freedom that comes in our marriage because of our relationship. Now, we're going to get into that in just a minute. So we have the ability to love redemptively. The question is, will we pay the price to do that? And so for the next two weeks today and next week, we're going to be looking at the book of Ruth. So this is, if you're going to have to listen quickly. I'm going to talk quickly and we'll get through this, okay? So we're going to cover the entire book of Ruth in two weeks. Um, Week three of this series, um, I just spit all over. If you're on the front row, bring your ponchos. It's like a Gallagher concert here. Um, (laughs) So week three, on the 15th, we're going to have some special guests with us, Ian and Larissa Murphy. If you don't know Ian and Larissa, they've got a book in our bookstore. It's called 828. They're members of uh, Saving Grace Church here in town. It used to be Sovereign Grace. And they're friends of ours. I love this couple so much. And they're going to be with us here in a couple weeks sharing their story. And I'm going to be interviewing them. You don't want to miss that. If you haven't read this book, I started reading it this last week. And um, I was at the Chinese buffet over by uh, Lowe's. And, you know, it was kind of quiet. And I thought, I'll go over there. I need to get out of the office. And I read, started reading this book. And I, I like, had to have some moments where I was like, okay, look away, like, whew, collect myself a little bit, you know, because I didn't want to be the guy somebody walks through and like, man, those egg rolls must be terrible because I'm just <laughs> eating an egg roll, you know. 
uh, but man, the book is so good. You need to pick it up and read it. Uh, but they'll be with us on the 15th. And then the following week, the last ser- uh, weekend of the series, Pastor Todd is going to be preaching to us, and he's going to bring a word on the book of Hosea. And you do not want to miss it. This is going to be a great series. Uh, so we're picking up in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 today. If you want to turn over there, you can. It's going to be on the screen as well. This is what it says. It says, in the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So just to to frame this a little bit, this story, the story of Ruth, takes place during the book of Judges. So this historical period in Israel when it's kind of a dark time for Israel. There's not a lot of forward progress spiritually. They seem to be in a rut. It's just kind of a dark time for them. It's before they've gotten a king. It's kind of Samuel. I'm sorry, some of the spiritual leadership is gone. They haven't had a real king. And so they're just kind of in this void of leadership. And this is where Ruth takes place. It says, in the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, this is interesting because it says there was a famine in the land. So there was no food, and we understand what it means to be in lack. We understand what it means to not have a lot. But it's interesting because the name Bethlehem, which we're all familiar with, is the birthplace of Jesus, but Bethlehem means house of bread. And so what it says is there was a famine in the house of bread, a place that there should have been much, there was none. There was lack. And I just think that's a picture for us today. There are churches all across our country that should be a house of bread. That should be a place that people can go and they can partake and they can grow in their faith. They can learn about the word of God. They can learn about the character and nature of who God is. Uh, But there is a lack there. There is a famine in the land. And as a result, our nation is, is dying on the vine in many ways. And this is one of the reasons I feel so strongly about empowering other churches to do what God has called us to do. It's not just about us building a great church, but it's about us empowering other churches to be houses of bread so that they can feed and equip and grow their saints to go out and do what God is calling us to do. And so when we look at this, I think it's so interesting that there was a famine in the house of bread. And so this family, this Jewish family, they went to the the country of Moab. Now, if you looked at a map, Moab is around the Dead Sea from where Bethlehem is. So they, they went on a long journey to get to Moab. And Moab was a place that that most Israelites would not have been crazy about going because uh, the Moabites were descendants of an incestuous relationship. And so by default, they were unclean. Um, Moab was the son of Lot, who was Abram's nephew, okay? And Lot and his wife, they fled Sodom and Gomorrah, and they weren't supposed to look back. If you remember this story, God destroyed this city, and Lot's wife was turned to salt, and they were hiding in the hills, and this is just, if you think the Bible is all just clean and shiny and happy, um, Lot's daughters decided, hey, we've got no hope because um, who are we supposed to marry now? Our husbands are gone, and here we are with our dad, and there's no, what are we supposed to do? And so their plan was to get their dad drunk and be with him biblically and have kids. And that was their plan. And Moab was the spawn of this relationship. And so as a result, the Moabites were not looked at in a very favorable light by Israel. Does that make sense? Um, Again, this is shiny, happy stuff here. So we see that this man, Elimelech, went to Moab. He took his family. Verse 2, it says, The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, let me just tell you this. Um, Interesting names. The name Elimelech means my God is king, which is great, right? 
But how many of us say, will say, my God is king, it's gonna be okay. And then we'll go, oh my gosh, my life is terrible, I gotta fix this. And I'm not saying he shouldn't have gone to Moab because God worked this out for his glory. But so many of us, we will proclaim with our mouths one thing and then we'll live our lives a different way. We'll say, yeah, I love God, I love church. Man, I go to church, I'm part of the summit. And then you live your life in the most crazy way ever because you know I can go back and it's gonna be okay. And God is calling us to live in a higher standard and live differently than the world lives and live differently than everyone else lives. Now, I'm not saying you're not loved here, you absolutely loved here. We want you to be part of the summit, but we also wanna raise a high standard and say, what does the Bible say about our behavior and activity and the way we live our lives? And apply, instead of saying, how does the scripture apply to my life? Say, how does my life apply to scripture? Does that make sense? And so that's what God's calling us to do instead of just proclaiming and name what we are. And so Elimelech's name means my God is king. It's interesting, his kids' names, this is fantastic. If you don't think your kids' names matter, they absolutely matter. Um, Malon means sick. Fantastic. Why, who wouldn't want to name their baby sick? Except the next one was better. Kilion means dying. Hey, I'd like you to be my kids sick and dying, right? <laughs> These are my kids, stupid and ugly, right? Oh, I'm so proud of them. Come on. If you name your son Jeeves, you know they're probably going to be a butler or a driver in, like, in England, right? Like, it's going to happen. They're doomed to that. And so what they did is they named their kids. And I don't know why they named their kids this, but it's foreshadowing the way they, what happened in their lives. So we see, let me, let me move on. We'll come to Naomi in just a minute. And, and let me skip down to verse 3. It says, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Now, in this day and age, women had very limited rights, Okay. Uh, they didn't have as much freedom as we do, as women do in the United States today. And so you might think you got it bad now, but I promise, compared to the way they did have it, it you've got it good, okay? Um, so the ladies at this time, they had very limited rights. And most of the time, they could not uh, have property rights, and they could not own things like land and things like that. And so when her husband died, that was a bad deal, okay, because her provider was gone, but now she still had her sons, and her son's responsibility were to take care of her. So she was still okay, not a great situation, but she was still okay. Let me go on, though. Uh, and talking about her two sons, it says, these took Moab, uh, Moabite wives, the name of the one was Orpah, not to be confused with the you know, television personality, um, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the women... The woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So first she loses her husband. Now fast forward 10 years and her sons die. Now she's even older. Her sons have been married. Uh, and here they go. They, they pass away somehow. And they are left with these two widows, the daughters-in-law, and her. And there is nothing. What are we supposed to do now? How are we supposed to make a living? How are we supposed to, to feed ourselves? And there was virtually nothing for them to do. They were in a foreign land. She was away from her family, from her safety net, and she's going, what am I supposed to do now, God? My, my husband died, my boys died. And if you can imagine, if you're a woman in this place and you can imagine your husband dying and then your sons died, how hopeless you'd be without trying to think of the responsibility of taking care of yourself and living and just, just eking out an existence. But this is where she was. You, you can imagine how she might have felt, how upset she might have been. So she does what, what really any reasonable woman would have done. She decided, I can't stay here. I'm going home. That's where my safety net is. And so down in verse 16, well, she, she tells her daughters-in-law, hey, you guys leave. Go 
just go back to your families, okay? Because the only hope you have is to remarry. And according to Jewish law, their kids could be redeemed or their husband, the dead husband's line could stay alive if they married a brother, okay? So let me try to help paint this a little clearer. Um, If, (laughs) this is gonna be harder than I thought. If uh, my wife and I, we had a daughter. Abby decided she was gonna marry a young man and she marries the young man and they begin to have a family and that young man dies and he probably would die if it was up to me. I would strangle the light. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) She marries a guy and he he passes away and all of a sudden she's left and, and there's no heir and the property and what is she supposed to do? But according to Jewish law, she could marry her brother-in-law and he would be responsible for the lineage of his brother. Does that make sense? So basically, his brother would not be forgotten. Her first husband would not be forgotten. And that's what we were looking at here. Because when both brothers died, there was no hope for the daughters-in-law. There was no hope for the mother-in-law. They were hopeless in this situation. So Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, go home. Go, go find a man to marry. Go live your life. Because even if I lived long enough to have another baby, you'd be too old, I'm too old. It would never work out, right? So there's no redeemer here. So go home. And it's interesting because Orpah said, you got it. She resisted at first but said, you got it, I'm leaving. And this is interesting what happened to Ruth. In Ruth 1, 16, it says, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This is a bold statement for, for a daughter to make to her mother-in-law, Right? Like some of you are thinking, I would never say anything like that to my mother-in-law, right? It's a bold statement. But she says, I am committed to you. I'm not going anywhere. And this is one of the big elements of redemptive love is commitment. Saying, you know what? I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving this place. And it's more than just a commitment. It's more than just an agreement. Because a lot of us are familiar with the lease agreements or we're familiar with contracts and business. Where basically a contract says, if you do this, I'll do this. But if you don't do this, then we're breaking the contract and this agreement's off. And a lot of us will approach uh, covenant relationships in this kind of way where we'll say, if you do this, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But if you don't, that's the end of it. But what a covenant is, is it's much deeper and richer than that. It has everything to do with relationship. So it's a commitment, not just based on word, but based on relationship. And many of you, you're sitting here thinking, well, covenant, what does that mean? A lot of people in this room have taken covenants. If you don't believe me, think back to your wedding day. I, Mel, thank you, Kim, to be my wife, for better, for worse, richer, for poorer, in sickness or in health, as long as we both shall live. What was I just telling her? What I was telling her was, no matter what happens, the circumstances don't matter. I'm committed to you in covenant relationship for the rest of our lives until death do us part, right? That's what a covenant is. And that's what Naomi and Ruth are establishing here. And in fact, it goes back, if you look in Genesis chapter 17, you don't have to turn there, but Jesus, uh, God, I'm sorry, tells Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people. This is basically the same thing. It's almost similar kind of a mirroring covenant that Naomi and Ruth have with each other that God took up with his people. And it's bigger than just an agreement. Hey, as long as this works out for me, I'll go with you. But she's saying, I'm gonna die with you. I'm gonna be buried with you. I'm committed to you for the rest of my life. 
And she's saying, I'm gonna take care of you. See, Ruth loved Naomi sacrificially. She loved her in a way that was redemptive because she said, you know what? This might not be the best thing for me, but it's gonna be the best thing for you. You might not have anybody else that's gonna take care of you, but I'm gonna take care of you. I'm gonna fight for you. And that's redemptive love. It's powerful because a lot of us don't experience that. We don't understand that. But that's what redemptive love is. It's saying, this might not be the best thing for me, but it's gonna be the best thing for you. I'm gonna fight for you. And that's what Ruth tells Naomi. So Naomi relents, and they go back to Bethlehem. When they get there, some of the ladies, and God bless you ladies, I love, I love the ladies of our church. And we don't have gossipy rumor kind of, I've been in churches like that, and we don't have that here, I'm thankful for that. But, but women, women love to talk, right? Like, so Naomi shows up, she's been gone, 10, 12, 15 years, and the women of town say, is, is that Naomi? Is that Naomi? She doesn't look so good. Woo. Like, she had some bags before, but she's like trunks under her eyes now. Like, I don't know where she's been. That's woo, a lot of mileage, right? They're kind of whispering behind the scenes. And this is what Naomi says to them. She said, and this is in verse 20, she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She said, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? See, Naomi, the, word, the name Naomi means cheerful, means pleasant. But she said, that's not who I am. I'm Mara and Mara means bitter. She said, I, when I left, I was cheerful because of the circumstances of my life, because of what I've encountered, but what I've, well, because of what I've walked through, because of what I've lost, I'm not that way anymore. Now I'm bitter. Call, call me Mara. That's more appropriate. Because this is the way God has dealt with me, and this is God, how God has, has approached me. And I understand that, because if we've ever walked through difficulty in our lives, we understand that sometimes it, it affects the way we see God. It doesn't change who God is, but it affects the way we see God and with the way we view God. And her view of God was not a very healthy view. And so she said, nope, I'm not cheerful. I'm not pleasant. I'm not happy. And probably nobody had to have her say that either. They could probably see that all over her, right? She said, I'm bitter. It's call me Mara. And the truth of the matter is she allowed her circumstances to dictate her identity. She, she allowed the circumstance of her life to determine who she was and who she would be and who she would carry herself as. And she said, you know what? The circumstances of my life have been hard and bitter and difficult, so call me bitter. And some of us have done the same thing. We've walked through difficulty. We've walked through hurt. We've walked through pain. And we've allowed that to define who we are. And we live our lives according to our difficulty and our pain and our hurt. And when we do that, we are incapable of loving redemptively. Because I think Naomi loved Ruth but I don't think she truly loved her redemptively at that point because of what was going on in her life. If you wanna love redemptively, you can't let your circumstances define who you are. You can't let your circumstances dictate your identity or you will be incapable of loving redemptively. It doesn't mean you're gonna be a terrible person. It doesn't mean you're going to hell. It doesn't mean any of those things, but it's gonna mean you are incapable of loving people the way God wants you to love them when you let your circumstances determine who you are. So she said, don't even call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Fast forward to Ruth chapter two. 
Basically, at, at this point in history, uh, in the Jewish world, one of the only ways for widows and orphans and invalids and um, people who were traveling who had no place to stay, one of the welfare systems they had set up was during the harvest time, the people that met these criteria could find a field of someone who was charitable and they could walk in the field behind the harvesters and they had to stay far enough back where they couldn't get the good stuff. So the harvesters would come through and they would gather what they could harvest and sometimes they would drop pieces behind them, or they would leave sheaves behind them. And there were areas set up in Levitical law, there were areas of the field where they would not harvest so that they could leave that for, for the poor, for the widows, for the orphans, and people like that. And so Ruth tells, Naomi tells Ruth, she says, you need to go to a field and go, go get us something to eat, okay? We're back home, but we ain't got no food, right? So you need to go find some food for us if you would. And so she goes to the field and she begins to work. And we see in Ruth chapter two, verse three, it says, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan Elimelech. Everybody say Boaz. Boaz is a really important person in this story. And I'm just gonna give away this a little bit. He is the Christ figure of this story. Boaz is a really important person. Um, he was wealthy. He was well-to-do, and, and he, we're going to find out, is um, related to uh, Naomi and, by default, to Ruth as well. So we see, and let me pick it up in Ruth chapter 2, verse 6. Um, Boaz shows up on the, on the field. He, he, hey, how's everybody doing? He's talking to his servants, and it says in verse 6, And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered. He asked, who is this girl? And, and the servant, uh, he responded and said, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came. And she has continued from early morning until now, except for short rest. I love what he says about her, what, he, what his witness is about her. He said, man, this woman works like a dog. She, she got here at the beginning of the day, and she's worked all day long, and she just had a little bit of rest. Like, what an incredible testimony, right? Hard work pays off, whether we want to admit that or not. Um, hard work pays off. When we get out there and we bust our rear and do what we're supposed to do, God can bless us when we do that. And, and that's what she did. She got out there, and Boaz was impressed by that. So he, he called to her and brought her over. In verse 8, it says, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. So what he's saying is, hey, I want to give you special provision. You're not going to act like all the rest of the, the people who are begging and just trying to get a handout here. Uh, I'm going to treat you differently. He said, so stay with my women, with the women who are here serving. You're going to be like one of my servants. And he says, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping. So he said, stay close to them. You know, keep focused on this field, and, and you're going to get as much as you need. He says, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And, and there were dangers of assaults and all kinds of things, and he said, you don't have to worry about a thing. There's going to be protection. There's going to be provision. He goes on to say, and when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. He, he said, you know what? You get to drink with the men. And again, this is another um, this is another oh, kind of dynamic in the Old Testament where, where women and men, they had to drink differently. They couldn't drink at the same time. Men got to drink before the women. And so he said, hey, you get to go drink with the male servants. When they draw water, you go drink with them. This was a big deal, what he was doing, what he was saying to them. Verse 10 says, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? 
But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to the people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge." Let me circle back to the word wings in just a second. And verse 13 says, Then she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Now when Boaz says to her, you've taken shelter under the wings of the Lord, now we think in terms of angel wings, of eagle's wings, all those kind of things, like the Bette Midler song, You're the Wind Beneath My Wings, which was one of my all-time favorite songs. I'm just kidding. It really isn't. Um, but we think of wings as literal wings, but in this passage, the word wings can also be interpreted as a, like a prayer shawl. And so many times the prayer shawl in ancient Israel, and even today, was used as a covering for protection. Wind would begin to blow, a storm would blow up, and they would cover themselves and protect themselves from the elements. And so this is the connotation that Boaz is using when he's talking to, to Ruth here. He says, you know what? You're going to be covered. You're going to be protected. You're going to be sheltered. Not just in some metaphor kind of wings that you get to fly with the eagle. It's not like that. He's saying you're going to be protected if you stay here under the covering of the Lord. And then she said, I found favor in your eyes. And she calls herself a servant. And when she refers to herself as a servant, we're going to see the importance of this later. But she refers to herself as a servant. And the word that's used there for servant is a term that means a servant with no rights or a servant with very limited rights at all. So what she's saying is she's saying, this is who I am. If I'm your servant and I'm in your household, then this is who I am. I'm the lowest possible servant. But as you can see, Boaz isn't treating her like that. He's treating her like family. And again, I would say to you, and we haven't seen the full force of this, but Boaz is loving her redemptively. He's saying, hey, it doesn't help me for you to, to get more stuff, but it helps you. It's a blessing to you. So I'm gonna love you redemptively. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you something. I'm gonna help you out because I've seen what you've done. He's loving her selflessly. So she works hard. Um, before she even leaves that day, Boaz says, hey, hey, come, come get some of this food. Here, here, have some of this bread. No, no, no. Hey, dip, dip your bread in this wine. You know, give us some flavor. You know, hey, why don't you, here, take some more with you when you go. Have you ever, like, gone to grandma's and your grandma's like, here, did, did you get, here, how about a loaf of bread? And you're like, I don't need a loaf of bread. And she's like, no, no, I made an extra. Here's a loaf. And I, whoa, whoa, I also got some of these. And here, take this with you. And you walk out and you feel like you went to the grocery store, right? You're like, what in the world? Um, like every time we go back to my parents' house, for some reason my parents want to send snacks home with my family because I feel like they think we're incapable of letting our girls snack. So they'll send like Rice Krispie treats or cookies or something, like boxes of them. And so somehow we always get more, right? And this is what happened. Boaz gives Naomi, he gives and gives, or Ruth, and he gives and gives and gives. And so Ruth goes home that night and she's got this apron full of food and bread and all this stuff and she gets home and lays it down. And this is what happens in Ruth 2.19. It says, and her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law of whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I have worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So she says to her, now remember, this is the woman who said, don't call me Naomi, don't call me cheerful, don't call me happy, call me bitter, because God has dealt bitterly with me, so that's who I am now. This woman, now she hears the circumstance, and she says, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. 
She's saying, you know what? In spite of my circumstances, in spite of what I've been through, our God is still kind and still good. And I didn't see what God was doing at the time. I thought God had forgotten about us, but God hasn't forgotten about us. Because the man whose field you reaped in and you, you went and worked in today, he is capable of redeeming us. He is capable, of, by Jewish law, of marrying Ruth and taking on that lineage and redeeming her family where they don't have to be destitute and hopeless and helpless any longer. And she said, God maybe knows what he's doing after all. Maybe the infinite God of the universe who created everything in a word, maybe he knows what he's doing in my life after all, right? And she said, I, I've been called Mara. I've been called bitter. But you know what? God is so good that he hasn't forgotten about us after all. Ruth chapter two, verse 23 says, so she kept close to the young women of Boaz and gleaning until the end of the day or end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Now we'll pick up in chapter three next week. But I just wanna encourage you today. I don't know what you've been through or what you're going through, but God has not forgotten about you. I don't know what kind of difficulty you've walked through, what kind of loss you've endured, but I can tell you our God is still good and he's still kind and he has not forgotten about you yet. God loves you redemptively, not just spiritually so you get to go to heaven, but he loves you, he sees your circumstance and he wants to redeem your circumstances for his glory. If you would have told Naomi, hey, guess what, Naomi, I know you lost your husband and I know you lost your sons and I know your life looks bad and I know you, you gotta move all this way and leave your home and, and go back to people who are probably gonna judge you, but guess what, God's gonna work it out. Doesn't that sound like something church people would say? Oh, God's in control. And we go, would you shut up, right? I don't, I don't need to hear that. And I'm hesitant to tell you that today, but I want you to know God hasn't forgotten about you. He sees where you're at and he knows. And he's gonna redeem your circumstances for his glory. He's gonna turn your situation for good and he's gonna use it for good. You know, I hadn't planned on saying this. The book, the title of this book is 828. It's from Romans 828 that says that God is gonna work all things to good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That doesn't mean that your life is gonna be perfect. That doesn't mean you get a flat tire and God's gonna bless you with a new car. What it means is when you get your flat tire, it's gonna stink and maybe it's in the snow or the rain, but somehow through that circumstance, God is gonna draw you closer to him and you're gonna know God more. And because of that, that's the good you're gonna see in your life. And, and if you ask me, if I could have that or I could have the new car, give me the walk with God that's more intimate and closer every single day of the week. That car's gonna break down. It's got maintenance fees. It's got all kinds of, it's gonna need new tires, right? It's gonna oil changes, all that kind of stuff. But give me the good that comes with that relationship with God. And that's what God is talking about. So today, I don't know what you're going through. I, I don't know how deep you are in your problem, but I know that our God loves us redemptively. I know that our God cares about you right now, even though you might feel like you've been forgotten. You haven't been forgotten. God knows you, he sees you, and he hasn't left you. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you love us redemptively. That God, you don't love us because of what we can bring to you. You love us because of what you can bring to us, and that is freedom. Lord, you literally have purchased us from the slave blocks and you've given us new life. So Lord, I pray today, if there are those here that are struggling, maybe they're struggling to even know you, God, I pray that you just reveal yourself to them. God, if there are those here that are walking through difficulty in their life, circumstances, situations that seem beyond their control, God, I pray today you would let them experience your redemptive love and know you deeper than ever before. 
And God, I thank you that you haven't forgotten us. You, you said you are a friend that sticks closer to than a brother. You'll never leave us or forsake us. And God, let us not forget that today. Let it not just be churchy, Christian things we say, but Lord, let it be in our heart. Let us remember that. Have your way with us, God. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you're here today and you say, Mel, you know what? I, I don't know that love of God because I don't even really have a relationship with God today. I don't really have a relationship with Jesus, but I want to, and I wanna start that relationship today. If that's you, would you just put your hand up and slip it up with nobody looking around and say, that's me, pray for me. Thanks, over here on my left, I see you. Who else says, that's me, pray for me. I wanna have a relationship with God, I wanna know him, thank you. Down here in the center, I see your hand, sir. Who else? Who else says, that's me, pray for me, Mel. I wanna know God, I wanna have a relationship with him. I'm not gonna ask you to come forward, I'm not gonna embarrass you, I just wanna pray with you wherever you're at, real quickly, anybody else? All right, I'd like everybody in the room to repeat this prayer after me. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. I give you my life today. Take it and use it for your glory. I commit to do my best to follow you for the rest of my life. And I'm never going back to my old ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, can we give God a round of applause this morning? Thank you, Jesus. You're so good.